Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Texas shooting updates. The suspect's grandfather has a message for the victim's families while the community comes together for a vigil to mourn the lives lost. Senator Tom Cotton clashes with President Biden's pick for ATF director at a confirmation hearing. Find out what the heated exchange was about. Congress grills manufacturers and the FDA on the baby formula shortage. That's after two shipments of baby formula arrived from Germany. Iowa Republicans are battling a court ruling from 2018. They call it a roadblock in the state's path to banning abortion. The grandfather of the suspected gunman in the Texas school shooting says he feels for all the victims and their families. He told reporters Wednesday he didn't expect something like this from his grandson. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Rolando Reyes is the grandfather of Texas school shooting suspect Salvador Ramos. He had this message Wednesday for the victims and their families. He also said he didn't know his grandson owned any guns. Uh, I speak to him daily, but... Minutes before Tuesday's attack in Uvalde, his grandson, Salvador Ramos, reportedly sent a series of text messages to a German girl he met online. In the messages, Ramos complained about his grandmother, then texted that he shot her. Seconds later, Ramos texted, quote, I'm going to go shoot up an elementary school. That was his last message to the girl. A neighbor says he heard gunshots and saw Ramos run out the door panicked and had trouble getting his truck out of park. He then raced away. Witnesses near the school say they saw Ramos crash the truck in a ditch before the shooting, which left 19 students and two teachers dead. Ramos was killed by a Border Patrol team. Chief Raul Ortiz says they entered the classroom as quickly as they could. As soon as the officers arrived at the school, they didn't hesitate. They knew what they had to do, and uh, I was really proud of the work that they did yesterday. Families of surviving students are counting their blessings. Mario Chacon's great-granddaughter is a student at the school. He had to wait until 5 or 6 p.m. Tuesday to hear that she was safe. Without knowing anything and the terrible anguish that caused, but thank God, yes, she survived this terrible massacre here. President Biden said Wednesday that he and the First Lady will visit Uvalde soon. Biden said he hopes they can bring a little comfort to the community. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A tearful tribute to the young victims of the school shooting. Based on what we know so far, most of them were fourth graders around the age of 10. A heart-wrenching night in Uvalde on Wednesday. As hundreds gathered in the county area for prayers and condolences, the community held a vigil for the 21 lives lost in the Robb Elementary School massacre. You may cry, because our hearts are broken. We are devastated. People stood up as the leader of the service sang a hymn some seen choking back tears. Texas Governor Greg Abbott attended the memorial, embracing parents who lost their children. A total of 19 children, mostly fourth graders, were killed, along with two teachers who tried to protect the kids.
Here's what we know so far about them. Jaila Silguero and her classmate and cousin, Jace Carmelo Luevanos, were both killed in the attack. Tess Mata had a sister who wrote on Facebook that she missed Tess so much. Eliana Garcia's father confirmed his daughter's death on social media. The girl played on a local basketball team. Her aunt said she was sociable and comfortable around others. She was very happy and very outgoing. Loved to dance and sing and play sports. She was big into family, enjoyed being with the family. Father of 10-year-old Jacqueline Cesares said his daughter was always willing to help others. She's full of love and full of life. And she would do anything for anybody. And to me, she's, she's a firecracker, man. She, she's, uh, it comforts me a little bit to think that she'd be the one to help her friends in need. GoFundMe fundraising pages were set up to help some families pay for funerals. Over $100,000 has been raised so far from almost 4,000 donations. The Senate Judiciary Committee met on Wednesday to consider President Biden's nomination to head the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. A tense exchange occurred between a senator and the nominee over the definition of assault weapon. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. President Biden's pick for ATF Director Stephen Dettelbach was hesitant to answer questions about which weapons fall into the assault weapon category. Biden is decrying current gun laws after recent mass shootings. He says there are reform options that don't negate the Second Amendment, which he says is not absolute. Senator Tom Cotton asked Dettelbach about his 2018 campaign for Attorney General of Ohio when he called for a ban on so-called assault weapons. Cotton asked him to define what an assault weapon is. It would only be for a legislative body, whether it was the Ohio legislature or the Congress, it would only be for a legislative body to do that work. And I acknowledge that would be a difficult task to define assault weapons. The senator asked how that was possible. So, so you're running for public office and you called for a ban on assault weapons, but you don't have a definition for assault weapons? Dettelbach admitted that although he called for the ban, he hasn't gone through the process of defining the term. I acknowledge that's a difficult task, but it would be for this body to do, not for me. Cotton continued to press Dettelbach and asked why it's so hard to define assault weapons. Well, I, I think, Senator, what I, what I told you, which is that it is, you don't, you don't want it to be so narrow as to be meaningless and you don't want it to be so broad as to uh, infringe on the rights of law-abiding Americans unnecessarily. Cotton says it's a term used by politicians and lawyers in Washington. I think it's very telling that you're nominated to lead the ATF and, and you don't have a definition of assault weapon. And the point is that there is really no such thing as a category of weapons known as assault weapons. There are rifles, there are shotguns, there are pistols, they have properties, they have features. Um, but there is no such thing as a category of assault weapons. Um, After the recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas that left 19 fourth graders dead, Democrats are renewing demands for stricter federal gun control legislation. I believe in the Second Amendment. It's the law of the land. There are measures we can take that are consistent with the Second Amendment that will separate people from firearms if they are dangerous to themselves or others. Red flag statutes, background checks. In September last year, President Biden was forced to withdraw his first nomination for ATF director, David Chipman, after he proved too controversial even among Democrats. Chipman also called for bans on assault weapons and answered in a similar way to Dettelbach when asked to define them. To be confirmed, Dettelbach will need to prove more popular with several moderate Democrats than Biden's previous nominee. Being evenly divided, a single defection in the Senate will cause Dettelbach's nomination to fail. 
In the absence of a Senate-confirmed ATF head, the agency is run by a non-confirmed acting director. During the hearing, Dettelbach vowed to never let politics in any way influence his action as ATF director. Former President Donald Trump posted a statement on his Truth social media account on Wednesday. Trump says America needs real solutions and real leadership in this moment, not politicians and partisanship. He says he will still speak at the National Rifle Association's annual meeting in Houston, Texas on Friday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. One of the top security officials on Capitol Hill would like to keep members of Congress from carrying firearms. House Sergeant-at-Arms William J. Walker says he does not believe lawmakers should carry guns in the U.S. Capitol complex. In his letter, Walker admits his opinion on the issue is not held by most. Currently, members of Congress are allowed to carry firearms in office buildings if they are licensed in the District of Columbia. However, guns in certain areas are restricted, such as the House floor. A final decision to extend those restrictions is up to the Capitol Police Board. That includes the House Sergeant-at-Arms, the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, and the Architect of the Capitol. Major efforts are underway to address the growing baby formula crisis. On Wednesday, a large shipment from Europe arrived in the U.S., and lawmakers pressed the FDA and manufacturers about their response to shortages. Here are the details. A critical day in the effort to resolve the growing baby formula shortage in the U.S. A second international shipment arriving on the same day that lawmakers grilled manufacturers on Capitol Hill. I'm looking for answers and for a long-term plan moving forward so this doesn't happen again. The three companies that control the majority of baby formula supply in the U.S., Abbott, Gerber, and Reckitt, testifying before a group of House lawmakers. Also in the hot seat, the FDA commissioner, who acknowledged the agency's slow response to the shortage and promised changes. You will see changes in the near future. Our requests for funding and authority are essential in concert with improved operations and leadership. On Wednesday, more than 100,000 pounds of infant formula arrived in D.C. from Germany. It's the second shipment under President Joe Biden's Operation Fly Formula Initiative. The formula is being shipped to a Nestle distribution center in Pennsylvania. Nestle says the formula will be distributed to hospitals and retailers nationwide as soon as this weekend. Right now, the batches coming in, though, are going to wherever infants are who are dependent upon this critically special formula who have critical medical problems no matter where they may be. Abbott Nutrition says it plans to restart work at its Michigan plant on June 4th for the first time since a nationwide recall and shutdown of the plant which produced nearly half of the infant formula in the U.S. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says it will temporarily cover the costs of baby formula for low-income families in some states. The USDA is using the new Access to Baby Formula Act to make sure parents have access to alternative formulas due to an ongoing shortage. About half of U.S. states have contracts with Abbott, but because of the company's formula recall, many families on WIC are facing challenges. That's in addition to the shortage of some other formula brands, and low-income families may not have the money to pay for more expensive alternatives. USDA says it is now providing funding to help, and Abbott is covering the cost difference in the states where it has contracts. Iowa Republicans are seeking to overturn a state Supreme Court ruling from 2018. The ruling appears to stand in the way of efforts to prevent abortions in the state. Here are the details. For now in Iowa, abortion is still legal up to 20 weeks into a pregnancy. But if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, the state's lawmakers are poised to ban abortion despite huge obstacles ahead. In 2018, the Iowa Supreme Court uh, found a right to an abortion in the Iowa Constitution. And 
that's even farther, uh, it's more liberal than the U.S. Supreme Court. So that is um, a real, a real roadblock to protecting the unborn right there. Republicans are calling for justices on the state's high court to reverse the decision made four years ago. Leading the effort is Governor Kim Reynolds. She signed numerous restrictions on abortion after taking office, including a ban on abortion once heart activity is detected, which could be as early as six weeks. We're going to wait and see what happens at the United States Supreme Court. We have a court before the, we have a, a ruling before the Iowa Supreme Court, so we're going to wait and see what they do. And that actually will affect what our next steps are moving forward. Sally Frank, a professor at Drake University Law School, says she is slightly concerned about the situation. If the Iowa Supreme Court overturned the 2018 decision, which I view as fairly hopeful is unlikely because nothing's really changed in four years except the makeup of the court. So that would not be a good image for the court to just raw power overturn. Iowa Republicans are also seeking a constitutional amendment. It would specify that the state constitution does not recognize, grant, or secure a right to abortion. If state lawmakers give the measure a second approval, it could be on the ballot in 2024. I believe that life is valuable. It's created by God. There should be constitutional protections there for that life. And I think the fact that, that we've uh, allowed abortion for so long, I, I think that's eroded our value of life. The U.S. Supreme Court will hand down a decision on abortion rights in the next few weeks. If the justices overturn Roe v. Wade, other states could see similar conflicts between their new abortion laws and state constitutions. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed one of the nation's most pro-life measures into law Wednesday. The new law bans abortions at conception and allows private citizens to sue abortion providers. The law prohibits abortions at any stage of pregnancy, allowing for a few exceptions that include medical emergencies. Abortion is permitted in cases of rape or incest, but it has to have been previously reported to law enforcement. Under the new Oklahoma law, the use of contraception is still legal, and that includes the Plan B or morning-after pill. Pro-choice advocates plan to challenge the new law in court on the basis that it goes against the protections granted in Roe v. Wade. And speaking of abortion, our next guest describes his efforts on Capitol Hill to stop illegal transactions involving the sale of aborted fetuses. Please welcome U.S. Representative Scott Franklin of Florida's 15th District. Thanks for coming on the show, Congressman. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Congressman, can you tell us why it's important for Congress to pass your bill that prevents abortion organizations from profiting off of the sale of fetal remains? Well, this actually was something that was banned by law uh, back in the early 90s, but unfortunately there was a loophole in that bill and has subsequently been exploited as we've, as we've determined. Uh, this is a bill that's been brought up before in previous Congresses. It's also been discussed in the Senate, but it's just not anything that we've finally gotten over the goal line. And, and we were looking at it as a staff and wondering why that was the case. So we re reintroduced the bill, and uh, we're hoping we can get, uh, get it the attention it deserves in this Congress. If not, we will continue to push it uh, in the next Congress. And can you describe more specifically how these abortion providers exploit this loophole? So, you know, the, the sale for profit of fetal tissue is supposed to be illegal uh, per, uh, per prior law. But what's happened is these abortion providers have discovered that there's some uh, loopholes in there that allow them to charge uh, for handling fees, transportation, processing, disease screening, 
uh, other different types of, of mechanisms that they can put very vague pricing onto, and there's no guidelines around that. And, and we've we've seen examples uh, where, where groups like Planned Parenthood are profit or they're profiting very significantly off of this. And you know, as an example from a study that uh, Senator Chuck Grassley had conducted several years ago, uh, there was an example of Planned Parenthood selling a 20-week-old uh, aborted fetus uh, to an outside company for $60. Uh, and then this company turning around and parsing out the fetus uh, grotesquely and then making a profit over $2,400. And they do it under the guise of uh, transportation fees, handling costs, and that sort of thing. And this is happening on scale, and it's allowing these companies to circumvent the law. 20 weeks, that's almost more than halfway through the pregnancy. Correct, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty sickening report if you read what they've done to these, these fetuses. And so it, appear, it appears that the law prevents them from profiting off these, but this bill that you're proposing is more of an enforcement proposal? Yes, it is. Yeah, the law already prohibits it, but this is going to make the language very specific and clear that, that none of those fees that they've been charging and associating with uh, what they're calling legitimate uh, expenses can be charged. There'll be no mechanism whatsoever to make a profit off the sale fees. And how would a potential Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade play into this? Well, that's, that's going to change the landscape significantly, and um, you know, it's going to push a lot of this back to the states, and that's going to be interesting to see on a state-by-state on state basis uh, how they choose to proceed with it. But in any case, uh, whether a state uh, has an outright ban or they allow uh, um, abortions to, to any extent, by federal law, there'd be no opportunity for profit if there are fetuses out there. Congressman, Democrats control both chambers. What do you think the fate of your bill is going to be, and how are the midterm elections going to play into this? Well, especially considering now we're about to head into June, we've got elections coming up in just a few months. I, I don't see this getting the light of day on the House floor. Uh, but it's really more than just a messaging bill. This is a bill that's been introduced, as I've, I've mentioned previously, and has never gone anywhere. So we're patient. Just as it's taken us 50 years to fight against Roe, uh, we'll continue to fight this issue. And if we can do it in this Congress, we will. If not, you can be certain that we'll be bringing it back up again in January. U.S. Representative Scott Franklin of Florida, thank you so much for your update on this. Thank you. Coming up, Buffalo honors the retired police officer who shot at the supermarket gunman. He was also awarded a posthumous rank as the city comes to terms with what happened. And the city of Chicago is tightening its citywide teen curfew to help curb violence. The move follows a new juvenile curfew at Chicago's iconic Millennium Park put in place a week ago. We'll have more for you after this short break. Prosecutors rested their case Wednesday in the trial of former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman. The prosecution said Sussman lied to the FBI in a scheme to help Clinton get elected president in 2016. Prosecutors accused Sussman of illegally hiding his ties to the campaign and falsely telling former FBI general counsel James Baker that he wasn't there on behalf of any clients. Sussman's lawyers will now build their defense. In their opening statement, they denied Sussman was part of any scheme to deceive the FBI. The trial is the first courtroom test of special counsel John Durham's three-year investigation into potential misconduct tied to the FBI's Trump-Russia probe. Hillary Clinton and her campaign have not been accused of breaking any laws. Pennsylvania officials have announced a recount for the GOP Senate primary race. The state's top election officials said Wednesday the margin between the top two candidates is tight enough to trigger a statewide recount. This will drag the outcome into June as the candidates fight in court. 
In the Republican primary race for U.S. Senate, the top two vote-getters are Mehmet C. Oz with 419,365 votes and David H. McCormick with 418,463 votes. The 902 vote difference between these two candidates is within the one-half of 1% 1 margin that triggers a mandatory recount under state law. Each county can start recounting votes on May 27th. They are required to begin by June 2nd and finish by noon on June 7th. The announcement come a few days after McCormick filed a lawsuit to have updated mail-in ballots counted. No judgment has yet been rendered. The Department of State estimates that counties had about 10,000 absentee ballots remaining to count. It did not know how many were cast by Republican voters. There are also 860 Republican mail-in ballots without dates on their envelopes that are also the subject of court cases. Once the recount is over, the winner will face off against Democrat John Fetterman. That's for the seat being vacated by Senator Pat Toomey, who is retiring after his current term in office. The security guard and former police officer killed in the Buffalo supermarket shooting was honored at his funeral Wednesday. The Buffalo Police Department awarded him a Medal of Honor and the rank of lieutenant. Lieutenant Aaron Salter will always be remembered as a loving husband, father, friend, and now lieutenant who showed true bravery in the face of evil. He had a big heart and he was a good person. He was a quintessential officer and a gentleman. Having love for all people, regardless of race, color, or creed, that was Aaron, truly a friend who's sticking closer than any brother. Law enforcement officers from numerous U.S. and Canadian departments filled a dozen rows of the chapel in Getzville, New York. During the Buffalo supermarket shooting on May 14th, Aaron Salter fired multiple times at the shooter, buying time that allowed others in the store to escape. At least one of his bullets struck the 18-year-old shooter's armor-plated vest but didn't pierce it. 55-year-old Salter was working as a security guard at the store. He retired from the police department in 2018 after nearly 30 years. Funerals for other victims of the Buffalo shooting are scheduled for later this week. This week, authorities in New York honored two NYPD officers who rescued a man from an oncoming train in the subway. Last Wednesday, Officer Jason Mecaluso and Detective Henry Greco saw Suleiman Rafai struggling after falling onto the tracks. They pulled the visually impaired man to safety just in time as a train was pulling into the station. According to the Metropolitan Transit Authority, Rafai told the officers, quote, you are my friends for life for saving my life. The MTA gave Macaluso and Greco Hero of the Subway commendations. It's the MTA's highest honor for a non-employee. The officers were reunited with Rafai for the first time since the incident at the MTA's monthly board meeting. A man suspected of abruptly pulling a gun and killing a stranger on a New York City subway train has been arrested. But police say they don't yet know what motivated the attack. So he remembers everything that happened Sunday? I have no information that he does not remember what happened on Sunday. And he does have mental health issues. That is to be discussed at a future time. Every the case just started. We need to evaluate. We need to have him seen by a doctor. And I would just remind everyone that tensions are running high right now in the city, and this is the time to make sure our civil liberties are protected even more. Andrew Abdullah was taken into custody on Tuesday, just hours after authorities posted his name and photo on social media and implored the public to help find him. 
The 25-year-old is expected to face a murder charge in the death of 48-year-old Daniel Enriquez. Enriquez was shot to death while heading to brunch Sunday morning. Chicago on Wednesday passed an amendment to tighten its 30-year-old citywide curfew. That's after enacting a new juvenile curfew at the city's Millennium Park last Thursday. Here's the story. Wednesday afternoon, Chicago council members passed Mayor Lightfoot's proposal to extend the citywide juvenile curfew by one hour. Council members had a passionate debate before the approval. Opponents said that the extension would increase gun violence based on a study on Washington, D.C.'s juvenile curfews. Mayor Lightfoot rebutted. We're tweaking what already exists. Changing and making it uniform across every single day, a 10 o'clock curfew, not just for some, not just on the, during the weekday, but across one hour. It's not Armageddon, and with, with due respect, it's offensive and wrong and, and demonstrably false to say that these modest changes are gonna increase gun violence. That's just nonsensical. The citywide curfew excludes ticketed and sponsored events and teens who are with a responsible adult who is 21 or older. The amendment also raised the minor age from 16 to 17. The revision comes one week after a new curfew took effect at Millennial Park, which is home to the famous Bean Sculpture. The park curfew starts at 6 p.m. Thursday through Sunday and 10 p.m. Monday through Wednesday. Anyone younger than 18, if not accompanied by a responsible adult, is banned from the park during the curfew. Chicago residents like Andre Johnson express mixed feelings about the curfew at the iconic park. I'm kind of supportive and kind of not. I am because it's giving Chicago a bad taste. Like the visitors just want to come here and the beam is one of the biggest thing that you want to see while you're here. And to go down there and see a big crowd acting unruly for no reason, it is kind of disrespectful for the city. Damien Garcia, a high school senior, says he hangs out with friends at Millennial Park almost every day after school. It's kind of like lame because like this is such a cool place, you know, it's so open, it's nice out and it doesn't get dark to probably like eight. So, you know, like I think they should extend the curfew around here. Chris Mickelson is visiting Chicago from Minneapolis. I would want my uh, children uh, home before that time. Um, uh, but when it comes to um, any other visitors, I'm not really sure what that would do to uh, tourism um, because some people like to stay out. Mayor Lightfoot emphasized that the goal of the curfews is not to arrest teens, but to prevent large gatherings susceptible to violence. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. A half million fentanyl pills are off the streets after a drug bust in Arizona. It happened Monday, about an hour south of Phoenix, after police stopped an SUV for speeding. Police say a canine officer and his handler discovered 500,000 pills concealed in vitamin supplement bottles, along with a handgun and a large amount of cash. 31-year-old Martha Lopez and 30-year-old Tania Solis were arrested. They face several charges, including possession, importation of narcotic drugs for sale, child endangerment, and misconduct involving weapons. Two minors were found in the SUV at the time of the arrests. They are now in custody of the Arizona Department of Child Safety. Twitter has agreed to pay $150 million. That's after it was accused of selling users' private information without informing them. The Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission say Twitter will also need to protect users' data privacy more. Twitter's chief privacy officer says the company has paid the $150 million penalty and has also aligned with the FTC on privacy and security. The company's privacy officer said the matter concerns an incident disclosed in 2019 when some email addresses and phone numbers may have been inadvertently used for advertising. 
The complaint alleges that from at least May 2013 to September 2019, Twitter deceptively used personal information collected for specific security-related purposes. The FTC chair said the practice affected more than 140 million Twitter users while boosting Twitter's primary source of revenue. In California, outdoor water use will soon be restricted for Los Angeles City residents. On Wednesday, the City Council approved the move into Phase 3 of the City's Emergency Water Conservation Ordinance. Residents are now allowed to water outdoors just twice a week. The City previously allowed outdoor watering three days a week. The ordinance goes into effect June 1st. Governor Gavin Newsom has pleaded with residents and businesses to reduce water consumption by 15%. But in March, urban water usage was up by 19% compared to when the current drought began in March 2020. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin addressed a commencement ceremony at the Air Force Academy. He said defense partnerships are important to counter the threat from China. And the European Space Agency says it will continue cooperating with Russia on the International Space Station. The agency says Russia is a critical part of operations. All that and more after the short break. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin gave a keynote speech at the U.S. Air Force Academy's graduation ceremony. He told the class of 2022 to promote international partnerships in the face of threats from hostile nations. And in the Indo-Pacific, it's helping us to counter aggressive behavior from the People's Republic of China, which our new national defense strategy calls the pacing challenge for the U.S. military. Referring to Russia and China, Austin said certain countries are testing the values cadets have sworn to defend, adding that the power of teamwork is central to American strength. The graduating class had to endure the COVID-19 pandemic during their time at the academy, but Austin said it has lived up to its motto, strength and sacrifice. A cargo vessel shipping supplies from the U.S. to Ukraine has arrived at the German seaport of Bremerhaven. The U.S. is supporting Ukraine with crucial equipment in its war against Russia. The cargo ship sailed from the Belgian port of Antwerp to Bremerhaven. While there, vehicles, medical supplies, and temporary bridges will be offloaded and then transported overland to Ukraine. A U.S. Department of Transportation official says the vessel is carrying military equipment and medical vehicles that will provide supplies to injured people. A Russian soldier was sentenced to life in prison this week for the shooting death of a Ukrainian citizen. It's the first war crimes trial arising from the invasion. With the trial over, the victim's wife is trying to come to terms with her loss. Here are the details. Photographs and memories are what Katarina Shalipova has left to remember her husband of 36 years. 62-year-old Oleksandr Shalipov was shot dead on February the 28th in Chipohivka, located in Ukraine's northeast, four days after Russian forces invaded. The man convicted for his death, 21-year-old tank commander Vadim Shishimarin, was sentenced to life in prison on Monday in the first war crimes trial arising from the invasion. During his trial, he had asked for Katarina to forgive him. On the day her husband died, she said she had heard gunshots while she was in her yard. 
After looking out, she says she saw Shishimaren holding an automatic rifle. When I left the yard, I didn't see him immediately. But when I went further out, I looked here and I saw him lying here, shot, straight in the head. Katerina still has the bicycle her husband was riding when he was killed. Shishimarin had pled guilty to killing the unarmed Shalipov. Ukrainian state prosecutors said he had been ordered to shoot at him from a car. Shalipov's killing was one of what Ukraine and Western nations say is a far wider picture. Ukraine has accused Russia of atrocities and brutality against civilians during the invasion and said it has identified more than 10,000 possible war crimes. Russia has denied targeting civilians or involvement in war crimes. Shalipov's killing has shaken the entire community in Chupachivka, including his friend Nikola Radkov. I still can't believe that he's not alive. I still think that he's here, that he'll come here and say, good day or hello, that he says this. Despite Shishimarin's imprisonment, Mikola is unable to come to terms with the loss of his friend. The European Space Agency says it needs to continue to work with Russia as a partner in the International Space Station, and an astronaut spoke of the mutual commitment to spacework. The ISS, uh, of course, is a very special case uh, because there we do depend on each other. It is not possible uh, physically or technically to separate the two units because they are linked together and they are like one building. And we do need Russia and Russia needs the Western part uh, and otherwise the, the station will not function. So we have a necessity to work together. The ISS is the largest artificial object in space and has been occupied since November 2000. A U.S.-Russian-led international consortium of five space agencies from 15 countries operated. Russia's space agency chief has said U.S. sanctions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine could destroy ISS teamwork. He said it could lead to the space station falling out of orbit. Europe needs to decide whether it is happy to keep flying into space with Russia or does it want to seek more independence from both Russia and NASA. The ISS has fewer than 10 more years to operate. And still to come, an Australian dairy farmer is feeding his cattle a byproduct from a nearby rum distillery, and it's having a measurable result on milk production. And a museum in Denmark is not only making replicas of Viking vessels, they're also sailing the vessels. Experts behind the project say they want to better understand the Vikings. We'll have more for you after this short break. Modern dairy farms typically look to new technology to increase milk production, but a property in Australia has found its own low-tech solution. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Three generations of dairy farmers have worked this 250-acre Sunshine Coast property. Now they're feeding stock a byproduct from a nearby rum distillery called Dunder. The Dunder certainly brings the cows home. Um, they're, they're keen to get home and keen to have a feed of it. And the Dunder is having a measurable result on milk production. For every four litres that I feed a cow, I'll get a litre response. It works out cheaper than grain. It's a cheaper byproduct than a lot of your, your standard feed types. 
Devere sources his dunder from a distillery not far from his property. It recently released a new batch of rum. We've got this incredible sort of closed loop on, on, on waste from our distilled spirits. Um, and it's a great feeling to know that's being used again. Sunshine & Sons Distillery is looking to build long-term relationships with local farmers by sourcing ingredients on the Sunshine Coast. Gordon Oaks is one of the distillery's local suppliers. Having someone promote the local area and put it all around Australia and the world, I think that's great. His family has been growing crops on the Sunshine Coast for 84 years, and they still own one of the largest farms in the region. His company, Oaks & Sons, supply the distillery with sugarcane and pineapple. We're just trying to make a very specialised style of rum and make it the best that we possibly can. Now Sunshine & Sons wants to bring its rum to the world stage. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead of summer, Panera is bringing back two lobster dishes for the first time in three years. Panera's lobster mac and cheese and its lobster roll will be offered for a limited time. The mac and cheese is topped with buttered lobster meat and seasoned breadcrumbs. The lobster roll has lobster meat tossed in lemon tarragon mayonnaise-based dressing on a New England roll. You can find the lobster dishes at nearly 200 Panera locations in the Northeast. A ship museum in Denmark is reconstructing and sailing replicas of vessels that the Vikings used over a thousand years ago. They say this is to understand better the Vikings' culture and way of life. The Viking Ship Museum in Denmark recently relaunched an accurate replica of an 11th century Viking cargo vessel. The original had sunk in the town's harbor. It took specialists, sailors, boat builders, and archaeologists five years to construct because they had to find out about the materials and techniques the Vikings used. And the reason why we want to research uh, the Vikings' cap capabilities is that we want to, to get a, a bigger view of the cultural, historical uh, abilities of the Vikings. The, the society they were living in. The remains of the original ship sit in the museum's ship hall. Archaeologists believe it was used as a coastal trading vessel, transporting goods along Danish coastal waters. The museum says they gained many new insights during the reconstruction process. We found out that the only way to really find something out about the Viking Age and about how they built their ships and uh, uh, how they sailed the ship is to actually do it. Uh, because when you start building a ship like this, then uh, all the questions start rolling in. How did they do it? What kind of tree do you have to pick up in the forest? And all these kinds of questions you wouldn't have asked if you were just looking at the original ship. A curator at the museum explains what type of experience visitors get when sailing on a reconstruction like this one. I think still for a lot of people when they go to a museum, it's something very abstract. You know, you're kept at a distance from the artifact, either it's behind glass in an exhibition case or in our case, there's a rope that keeps you quite far away. So you, you can't really get up close and personal with them. Whereas when you go out on a reconstruction, you're literally sitting on the rowing benches, you can smell the tar, you can feel the ropes in your hands. It's a much more sensory experience. And I think it gives people a much more direct connection with how it was in the past. The replica will be fully rigged and ready to sail later this year. Archaeologists are planning sailing trials with different types of cargo, everything from barrels of fish to sheep, just as the original ship would have been used. Just ahead, it's Fleet Week in New York City, and there are many activities you can participate in. This year's Parade of Ships features amphibious assault ship, the USS Bataan. And over 37,000 American flags are planted in Boston Common ahead of Memorial Day. They represent Massachusetts service members killed in action throughout U.S. history. Find out more right here on NTD News.
Fleet Week is back in New York City for the first time since the pandemic. It's a tradition in which active warships are showcased in cities across the U.S., and civilians get a chance to tour the ships. Let's take a look. The second day of Fleet Week in New York City featured the parade of ships along the Hudson River. This year's main ship is the USS Bataan. It's a U.S. Navy amphibious assault ship based in Norfolk, Virginia. Fleet Week is where we bring a bunch of different ships from the Navy, a uh, uh, bunch of civilians. You can come on, see a bunch of marine aircraft, marine uh, vehicles, see the ship. Uh, we have a couple different ships here, here, also Coast Guards here as well. Uh, so it's just a great time to see all the sailors that are out here, all the Marines that are out here, and all of our equipment that we have as well. Amphibious assault ships are used to support ground troops during an amphibious operation, and they can also carry helicopters. Great warship we have here. Uh, we do a lot of good work in humanitarian missions. Uh, we also have a lot of good capabilities for uh, in, in wartime if we really need to go to that. So uh, I work on a lot of things that are, are critical to defending the ship and, uh, and actually going out and doing the mission we need to do. So it's a good feeling to be in here to show people, like show, the, show America, yeah, this is what we can do as the United States Navy. Fleet Week is now in its 32nd year. It offers the public the chance to tour the warships and meet the members of the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. About 3,000 sailors, Marines, and Coast Guard members are expected to participate in this year's events. What's up, manning the rails with all the guys up there? Uh, it, was, it was a long transit, but it was really cool to see Statue of Liberty, uh, Manhattan as we're coming in. It was, it was actually really amazing. It's great. Uh, a lot of our guys did the 24th Mew this past year, so we've got a lot of boat experience, so it was kind of like being home. I got to see um, the Statue of Liberty, and it showed us um, that we are free and we have earned it. It's amazing. Definitely a bunch, a lot of experiences. Uh, can't, it's fun, very exciting. General public ship tours and a Navy dive tank in Times Square will begin on Thursday. Friday's events include a Navy band concert in Times Square, and on Saturday, there will be a military appreciation event at Rockefeller Center. Volunteers are beginning to plant American flags for the annual Boston Common Memorial Day Flag Garden. Each flag represents a service member from Massachusetts killed in action since the Revolutionary War. NTD reporters were there Wednesday. Let's take a look. Volunteers are planting over 37,000 small U.S. flags in Boston Common leading up to Memorial Day next Monday, May 30th. Flag planting began on Wednesday and will finish on Thursday. Staff Sergeant Brendan Banbury from the Army is among the volunteers. This weekend is a very special day. Uh, we're honoring all those who made the ultimate sacrifice uh, throughout our, our wars in the past. Uh, so you have a lot of surviving Gold Star families here uh, remembering their families. Uh, we're just here to support them. The flags represent over 37,000 service members from Massachusetts who have been killed in action since the War of Independence. This is the 13th year of the flag planting event, which is organized by the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund. Steve Kerrigan, co-founder of the organization, spoke to NTD about what they do. We are a fund that was created um, about 13 years ago, 14 years ago. We support families of uh, fallen service members who gave their life since the September 11 terrorist attacks. Uh, from Massachusetts. There are 388 uh, uh, men and women who have uh, lost their lives in service. And so we support those families uh, through financial support, behavioral support, uh, programmatic support. Volunteers helping to plant the flag shared with NTD why they are here and how they feel about volunteering for this event. So I want to take part in the, the community and, and help plant flags, raise awareness for, for veterans, Memorial Day, Gold Star families. And uh, yeah, just want to donate some time to helping out the community. 
really like being part of this day. It's, it's Again, it's a gorgeous day to be out here and give back. If you look, just seeing the flags across the common is amazing, amazing visual. I love it. It's amazing. It's a great experience and I've never done before. I'm having a good time and I'm so happy to do it and I get the opportunity to do it. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker will be joining a ceremony at the Flag Garden on Thursday. The last 388 flags will also be planted on Thursday, and they will represent the 388 Massachusetts service members killed in action since 9-11. The sequel to Top Gun arrives in theaters Friday. Here's a look at the history of the franchise. Six years after the original movie took to the skies, Top Gun Maverick is flying into theaters. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. The long-awaited sequel starring Tom Cruise as Pete Maverick Mitchell has much history to outmaneuver. The original Top Gun launched in May 1986, shooting down $357 million at the worldwide box office. Movie's soundtrack album soared to number one on the Billboard charts, earning new wave band Berlin an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Take My Breath Away. A squadron of video games from 1987's Top Gun to 2010's Top Gun Hardlock have simulated the danger zone of aerial combat in the decades between movies. Gun Maverick was on course to land sooner, but it had its mission temporarily scrubbed. Deadline reported its first delay, pushing it back from June 2019 to July 2020. Multiple pandemic delays grounded the film until its world premiere in April at the movie theater owner's event CinemaCon in Las Vegas. And now, just over 36 years since the original took flight, Top Gun Maverick, with multiple positive reviews as its wingman, is headed at Mach 1 into movie theaters. A special rescue operation was launched outside the U.S. Capitol. The target was a brood of mallard ducklings that fell down a sewer. A total of nine baby ducks were trapped underneath the sewer. Their anxious quacking seemed like a loud cry for help, drawing a circle of pedestrians. Several men wearing work tags quickly came to the rescue. They were ground crews from the architect of the U.S. Capitol. They lifted the manhole cover and scooped up the birds using a long pole armed with a net. These yellow and black ducklings were soon netted and taken to a red bucket. After a few attempts, all the birds were brought to safety. Passersby walked up to get a closer look at this heartwarming rescue operation. Some of them marveled at the tenacity of the small beings. A staff member said these baby birds would be picked up by a wildlife agency in Washington, D.C. They could eventually end up in a foster home. Unless you've been under a rock for the last few years, you'll have noticed that the life we once knew has disappeared. What can be done about it? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Volumes on virtue and happiness line the shelves of libraries everywhere. There are studies that prove that virtue can increase happiness and doing good is associated with feeling good. So what are these magical qualities that will improve our general well-being? Let's start by considering the following. Honesty, kindness, sincerity, wisdom, courage, justice and diligence. These are noble attributes that can act as powerful resources when dealing with difficulties. 
Generally, people who lack virtue have a hard time with life. We observe people who make their own life and the lives of others difficult. They appear to lack integrity, mercy and self-control. Their lives can be full of commitment, which is good, but they are driven by competitive goals. A few examples include pursuit of wealth, consumption and excessive ambition. This may lead to disillusionment and disappointment. Love, gratitude, hope, curiosity and zest on the other hand are strengths and are more likely to lead to happiness or general feelings of well-being. Love connects us to other people. Gratitude connects us to the benevolence of the heavens. And hope offers us new horizons. Ego. Ah, the ego. It's your self-image. It gives us confidence, but is it overactive? It can be selfish, arrogant and an enemy. So can we get these things under control and make virtue a regular part of our lives? According to ancients like Aristotle and Lao Tzu, the answer is absolutely. Time has not diminished their wisdom. They argued that virtues can be formed by a habit, habits of deed and habits of the heart and mind. Thought first, action second. Virtuous, sincere thoughts result in virtuous actions. Hopeful, wise and loving thoughts result in hopeful, wise and loving acts. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.